So we'd like to ask for your intention, some um, a little review basically about toolkits, um, practical steps we can take to foster the mind's deepening in stillness, deepening in uh, fertility, deepening in um, becoming bigger in some way less preoccupied with content and more aware of the process. Um, I was asked yesterday to elaborate again on plan A and plan B. Um, I believe I have actually in the afternoon, but just for the, uh, for the record, uh, this is my uh, way of referring to a twofold attitude in practice. Plan A is what uh, clarifies what is my meditative task. I am a firm believer that we need, at least at some stage in our practice, to have the capacity to both identify a task and to undertake the training to tr teach, open, convince, coax, uh, make malleable our attention into something that is capable of performing a task, the task of relating, the task of acknowledging, the task of staying with, the task of investigating, the task on focusing on. All, all such things I deem to be pretty indispensable, irrespective of what your particular persuasion of practice is later on, unless you have that in place, whatever you try to add on later on is unlikely to have much weight. Because if you have not established that skill, you'll be just blown away by whatever happens. A little emotion, a little thought, a little disturbance from outside, and you're gone. Yeah? Unless you have in some way learned uh, subtle adhesiveness of your mind to a particular task. Now, it's not said that you will have to continue for the rest of your life uh, controlling your mind objects. Yeah. However, it is absolutely indispensable that the direction of your attention can become increasingly independent of the usual deal, which is Vedana-based, which says, if it's nice, I'm going to stay with it. If it's not nice, I'm going to go away from it. As long as we have not established some kind of capacity to, by dint of choice and deliberate um, intention, to stay with something, either small or big, either uh, in very fine detail or very stable and open, unless we have learned to do that, it's unlikely that our meditation will be very transformative. You still may get pleasant feelings, you still may get some greater distance to your patterning, but it's there is so much more to be won than that. So plan A is basically you making clear to yourself what you're actually doing in your what is your practice right now, you know. In other words, what is your task? Where say in terms of Anapanasati, where do you attend to the breath? How big is that space? Do you have other practices, say? 10 minutes of sweeping through the body to establish body awareness. 
and then shifting to the rhythm of your breathing and then maybe asking a question and then attending to the sensation and then maybe emphasizing a particular phase of the sensation. Those would be plan A. Or you do metta practice. Or uh, you have a particular contemplation that you have taken as a task. When you do walking, you contemplate the sensations of uh, touch in your feet, the sensations of weight while you walk. Those would be plan A. Plan B is very simply your agreement with yourself, what you do when you find out that you're not doing plan A. It's your clear and honest agreement that you intend to bring back your mind, that you do not simply wait till things end, that you're not just giving yourself to sleepiness, that you're not giving energy to unwholesome thought patterns, that you're not fueling that which you know to be not giving you real good chance for happiness, contentment, clarity, awakening. So plan B needs some discipline. Plan A needs particular skill, a lot less discipline, a lot more sensitivity, curiosity, gentleness, at the same time, a little persistence. That staying power, developing the staying power is part of plan A. Plan B needs to be clear, needs to be capable and willing to actually stop something that you find is not helpful. It's not part of plan A. It takes away your time or your energy or your clarity. So you need to be prepared to intervene. That's what plan B is about. Now plan A is as good as your willingness to live plan B. Yeah, All our yeses are only as much worth as we are prepared to protect them with no's. Yeah? If we say yes to this, we say no implicitly to a whole range of things. You saying yes to being at the forest refuge means you have said no to a whole number of other possibilities. Now that yes for the forest refuge is only as much worth as you're willing to continually renounce the other things you have said no to already, but you may uh, find you have second thoughts on this. That's not just in the case for meditation. You can read that in chapter 11 on uh, William James's famous chapter on attention, understanding that if you give your attention to something, it means you take away your attention from many other possible things. And the quality of your willingness to take it away from other things will be directly proportional to the quality giving your attention to that one chosen thing. It's very easy. It's not, it's not difficult to understand. We all have to practice acts of renunciation every moment when we make choices because our choices are only as valid as we're willing to protect these choices with our willingness to renounce other choices. Sometimes it's necessary to spell this out. The mind often pretends as if I can actually do multiple things at the same time. And as we know, not even women can do that really. So, toolkit.
identifying types of experience. You know, what is body stuff? Body stuff is sensation. Yeah? If you have a Gwenka background, then you will be surprised, or you may be already aware that the term sensation, the term Vedana there, are used in very different ways. So, in most of the Buddhist world's language, the first segment of, of Satipatthana, Kayanupassana, is understood to be things you feel in the body, namely sensations. It's something you would refer to as a verbal activity, as feeling, or as being aware of. Um, the realm is somatic, the realm is sensate, and it connects, obviously, not just with the touch or the haptic or the interceptive faculty of mind, but also anything that comes to you as sound, as smell, as, uh, as taste, as visual experience. All this would be body. Other dimensions of experience would be also bodily, but they're energetic. You know, how much sleepiness, how much energy is there, how much, um, how much distraction is there. It's, some of these are hard to distinguish. You know, sleepiness begins with a sort of flowery kind of feel in your head. But it, or it may also begin with a sort of leaden flowing sensation around your eyes, in my particular case. What it sounds like or feels like in your case, you'll have to find out. Your body has a vocabulary, a physical, somatic vocabulary for mental and energetic states. Some of those states we would consider more to be mind states. Some of them we would probably consider more to be body states. Energetic phenomena reach into both fields. If you're sleepy, then your body will feel sleepy and your mind will also feel sleepy. But you recognize the energetic depletion or the energetic vitality. Then you have particular mind states like distractedness, dissipating, uh, mind straying into various fields. You think more about people, you think more about things. We all seem to go through cycles on a retreat that suddenly, you know, initially these people are just here and then suddenly we get obsessed with him or her, what she does or what she doesn't, what you know, when she's there and not, and how, how he does his chore, or, you know, or why his chair is always this way, or he always takes more time, or couldn't he blow his nose less, or things, you know, we seem to, after a while, get obsessed with details. That seems to be just the human mind. I told you about the perfect monastery to meditate, and after three days you start feeling that the brooms are too long. And, you know, the perfect monastery suddenly becomes a place where you really can't meditate because brooms are the wrong size. So this is a pattern I have detected, not just in my own mind. It's quite easy to discern it in other people's minds. You get obsessed about sleep, about food, about weather, about cold, about space, about any possible feature of your experience you can and then you go through a variety of things. The feel you need to control it, the thing you feel helpless in, the thing you need to assert power. Um, you go into a generally deep process that seems to be triggered on by something. If you tell that to anybody, they will think it's insignificant. It's, you know, it's 
and it's easy to go into it, either believe it, yeah, that's bad, or think, oh God, I'm just neurotic, you know, I'm just obsessing. I used to be a normal guy and now I'm suddenly having sexual fantasies when I see a broom handle, yeah? So that wasn't always the case. This meditation really makes me weird, yeah? So there must be something wrong with me. So you begin to either identify with it by believing it, or you begin to identify with it as a problem. And neither of it is particularly useful. What you need to is contemplate your own patterning. That is really useful. Rather than blaming yourself for it or believing it, yeah, enacting it. So you need to begin to say, ah, oh, okay, this is, this, is, this is a familiar number. So uh, you need to identify that pattern. Now, when you deal with thoughts, there is a number of strategies that are useful. The first strategy and the most economical one is you just don't give it attention. When it talks to you, you just don't give it attention. Yeah? You just... I'll go into this later, what the Vitaka um, Santana Sutta says, who has a few things to say on this, but I need a little more breath for that. But if you can... If thought talks to you, just do not enter into dialogue with that thought. That's the first and most elegant strategy. If it doesn't work, yeah, you may just have to label it and say, thinking, thinking. Yeah, not more, just thinking, thinking. You acknowledge that this is happening, you identify it, and then you go back to your primary task, say breath or feet. If the thought is um, recurrent, and it's uh, patterns you, you, you know. Uh, I don't know how it is for you, but my mind often thinks thought it has been thinking before. You know, there's a decreasing originality as I get older. And if you recognize that pattern of thinking, it may be helping to identify a bit more specific, say analyzing or judging or philosophizing or, or just dreaming. Yeah. You may need to tell your thought pattern, you're, this is dreaming. Yeah. Right now you're dreaming into the future. Or if you find yourself judging or judgmental, then you, might, you may need to, rather than just say thinking, thinking, you may actually say, well, this is judgment. Yeah. This is judging. I'm not supporting this particular activity. Yeah. Or reminiscing. Yeah. So it may need, it may help if you identify a little more specific what type of recurrent thought pattern you have. Yeah? If you notice that that thought pattern is destructive, you may need to be prepared to just step in and say no. Yeah. No. You, need, you may need to actually do something quite resolute. Some impulse or some um, uh, emotional charges. Uh, if you don't know it, you will need to investigate what emotion is in it. Yeah? If you do know it and you have identified it as unwholesome, you may need to just stop it. Now that's not necessarily terribly peaceful or it's not necessarily terribly gentle, but you need to make sure that you do not give consent to something you have found to be unhelpful in your thinking mind. You need to assert 
your right of choice, your authorship in this. And if this story goes into a corner that you know to be unhelpful, that you know to make you miserable or make you um, angry or make you lost and isolated, then you, <coughs> then you do everything to not give this your energy. Yeah. You don't just sit there and observe it and hope it stops. The, the suttas are quite adamant about this, they say. He does not consent, he does not give his permission, he, he, um, he says no, he does not allow it to take root, and he uproots it, in fact. Yeah? He takes it, uh, he makes it disappear. Yeah? So the, the sutta language is actually quite, uh, it doesn't sound non-judgmental. Yeah? It doesn't sound uh, gentle meta practice and, and wait till it's over. It doesn't sound like that at all. It sounds quite active. Now, obviously, this is not a peaceful thing to do. Obviously, this is not something you want to do unless you have other softer, gentler options, because we know any willful uh, intervention is slightly jarring, isn't it? It's not helpful in terms of the project of stilling the mind. But as we know, whether you want to put a Buddhist spin on this or a neuropsychology spin on this, uh, the outcome is pretty much the same. If you allow particular patterns to run, then these patterns will deepen your ruts. You know? That's what Buddhist teaching says and that's what neurophysiology teaches us. You know? What fires together, wires together. If you uh, connect neural pathways in a particular way, again and again they grow stronger. And that's exactly what Buddhist teaching says. If you allow your mind to be angry, and you feed that anger through thought, or your tacit consent, or siphoning off energy maybe from a state of anger, and uh, secretly having a sort of secondary gain of this, then you will strengthen that. Then you will very likely stay, or probably become even more angry as time goes on. And this is not what we want. So we need to have realistic and pragmatic means to step in there. Open your eyes, you know, pinch yourself <laughs> if it's really bad, change your posture, do something with your breath. It's legitimate to distract yourself from something you have identified as wholesome, particularly so if it has a charge. Often enough, our, our problems are not of that nature. Our problems are of the nature that we are just slightly hazy about what we're actually doing. We're secretly expecting to be gratified. Something in our mind state telling us that it works. And if that doesn't happen, we're getting a little nervous or we're getting a little impatient. or We're, we're thinking, we're beginning a little doubt. Yeah? Maybe this is not working. Maybe you should switch you know, method, place. Teacher, teaching. Maybe these Vedanta guys really have something going, you know, just abide in non-dual awareness, you know, rather than this arduous, task-oriented mindfulness stuff. Just snip my fingers and lie back into Rikpa, into primordial suchness, taking me, showing me the true nature of mind. 
you know, maybe this is a lot more useful than this kind of breathing in, breathing out stuff. Who hasn't been there? Yeah. So, identify your tools. If you have dealings with pleasure or displeasure, you have to know what your mind and your body feels like when these things happen. How does the body feel when it is pleasured? How does the body feel when it experiences delight? How does the mind feel when it experiences displeasure, when it experiences uh, something that is rebarbative or something that is simply not comfortable? You know, what is my, how do I recognize these signs? Start with the body. The vocabulary of the body is the most in some ways the most incontrovertible. It's most honest. My mind never tells me I'm getting angry. Just my mind tells me I'm right. Yeah. When I listen to my breath, I can see something changes when I'm getting annoyed. Yeah. Something hardens, something becomes brittle. If I just trust my mind, it doesn't tell me that I have entered the state of aversion or so, or entered the state of desire. Yeah. We can be quite uh, good at fooling ourselves. The human capacity to deny reality is staggering. Yeah. We're really masters at this. So we need every trick in the book. And the, the first trick in the book is how does the body respond to various states? And then, depending on where you are, right now we're still at the stage where we're trying to not do big investigations. We're trying to basically park and make the mind still. Those of you who've arrived a few days ago, definitely. The other ones, you will have heard me say other things, so you do what you think is appropriate. But we need to give our mind some time to stabilize. Yeah? If we do the investigation part too early, we will just not have enough stability. You know, we will become part of the problem we're trying to investigate. And it's necessary to get the tools apart. You know. Sometimes it's necessary to orient. You know, I said the, the map of these four Satipatthanas. Understand that this Every event in our experience will manifest these four Satipatthanas. If you walk somewhere, there's an open window and hear sound. Yeah. Then, often it begins with Vedana. There's a kind of pleasantness there. And you say, oh, yeah. that, that, the Vedana part. Then you kind of you turn towards that open window. You stop your step so that you have more quiet. And then you listen. You kind of lean in. Yeah. That would be an intentional part. It's a little bit chitta. Then you're turning your body, brightening your face, you know, your chest widening because what you have heard is pleasant. This is kaya. You know. This is the somatic part of your experience. And then you catch the mood of the tune, you know, and you're feeling delight. And then you recognize some of that tune. And then, you know, this you lean into it. You not just neutrally receive it, but actually you appreciate it. Yeah. That gives you a sense of joy. Yeah. Clearly a chitta 
dimension of your experience. And then comes the commentary and says, well, wow, this is a bandoneon. Yeah, this is, I remember, I remember, this is a milonga. This is, this is a milonga of um, Piazzolla. Yeah, so. This is you walking along the road, hearing sound of music from an open window, in terms of Satipatthana. Pleasant orientation, body, then pleasant mind, joy, interest, then commentary, recognition, you know, pigeonholing this, Milonga, Bandoneon, Piazzolla, something like that. Every experience, every event in your experience has that pattern. Now, usually we stay in one of these particular segments of our experience. We favor one, not necessarily the one that helps us most. One that promises most gratification and one that conforms most to our habits. So it's necessary to orient, orient to present time. One way to do that is just posture, sense experience. What do I smell? What do I hear? What can I see? Is there taste right now? If you do a smell exercise, just walking from the meditation hall down to the, to the dining hall, you know, you can have an immense, you can do a little bit of badger practice. You know. Just kind of squint your eyes and walk down there. You kind of come out, meditation hall, and then there's the cleaning agent, and there's the shoe rack, then there's a kind of utility part with a little bit of soap, and then the food smells are getting stronger, you're taking the turn, and it's kind of, yeah. You're living kind of in a smell world. And you can use this as an awareness practice. So make use of this. This is as perfect as it gets. Um, it's still not perfect, just to be clear. You know? While many people are trying hard to make this as perfect, uh, you will find it's not difficult to find faults. There's people. Wherever there's people, there's lots of faults. Yeah, this this stuff for your senses. There's practically no sense experience that uh, can be made to be comfortable to one person that is not in some way irritant to another person. Yeah. Although we seem apparently quite similar, the closer you get in there, the more uh, it becomes obvious. It's hopeless to make things equally comfortable for all of you. So use these things. Use them as telltale signs mirroring the functioning and the patterning of your mind rather than either objectifying them and say this needs to be changed you know this needs to be prohibited she should really do that he should be stopped doing this or blaming yourself and pathologizing yourself and say you know i just have a thing about people you know basically i can't live here i need i need a hut on the moon you know oh yeah Use these as pointers. If you have to identify, identify with the patient, not with the illness. Yeah? Be a friend to the patient. Give this patient, this sufferer, this suffering being, gift is your loyalty, gift is your friendship, your, your support, rather than blaming it for the illness. That's help, helpful. If people come to your hospital bed and blame you for the illness, isn't it? It's not a particularly kind or effective thing to do. So consider that you, 
If the universe gives you prompts and shows you patterns of your own mind, uh, say, oh, thank you. I'm listening to the message. I take refuge to the Dhamma. It means I'm not turning away when the Dhamma speaks to me, when the patterns become to become apparent in which mind and body manifest. I'm not turning away. I'm like, I'm keen on learning. Teach me, universe. Yeah. So you say, thank you very much. Got the message. I'm not believing it. I'm not pushing it back. I see this is obviously the pattern. And then I go back to things that help me hold that pattern. Yeah? Help me stabilize the mind. Help me deepen a relationship, see more deeply into it. Rather than believing the surface appearance of it, kind of go in. Hold it more deeply. Yeah. We'll be doing more of this. Yeah, please make use of some of those tools and your capacity to orient. <coughs>
Good, please stretch for a moment and then let's do some standing. Just uh, loosen your ankles for a moment. Move your knees, your hips. And um, yeah, let's stretch. Use your fists. And then you're kind of letting your hips go forward and your head go backward. Uh, If you're pregnant, this is not a great exercise. So, And then you wait for a moment till the trembling starts (sighs) and come back to center feel and then again the trick is that your hips go forward and then the head goes back this time the arms go up and you're letting the head go back as far as possible. You're not stopping your breathing. And come back to the center. Okay. And the last time this with helping yourself with the fists so that the weight is taken off your back and hips go forward head goes back eyes are seeking the ceiling and you come back into the vertical good, that changes perspective isn't it? (laughs) So we're looking to weight the whole length of the foot, both feet, obviously. And we're (coughs) softening our knees so that they are neither bent nor locked. So technically, this is not a Tai Chi stand. It's, uh, we're looking for the anatomical zero position of the knee. Hips above the knees above the feet, shoulders above the hips. Take note where your hands touch the thighs if they do, whether this is the same height, the same place in the circumference of the thigh. And then let us see whether we can relax muscles. Toes are gently placed rather than clawed into the ground. Whereas the front part and the back part of the foot are taking their respective weight. Calves are soft. Thighs are soft. 
buttocks are not pinched, pelvic floor, abdomen, sphincter area is soft, not constricted, belly is just as big as it likes to be and warm, hands are heavy, thumbs are relaxed, arms and forearms you sense the weight in your shoulder and elbow joints. Shoulders are slightly drooping, falling. Front and back part of the neck are as likely as like in their tone as possible. Maybe you tilt your knee, uh, your chin for a moment and see whether that can help equalizing some of the tone in the larynx area and in the back of the neck part. Jaw slightly open. Teeth are not occluded, not closed. There are warm circling waves in your face, moving around your mouth, around your eyes, soften the tension of the, the socket for your eyeballs. And then these warm flowing circles go up to the forehead and help that your brow unknits. Whenever there is tension arising or discomfort, we gently extend our awareness to that part. Breathing in, acknowledging how it is, breathing out, gently softening. Sending some of the power of the out-breath into that area. And then we go to the center of the body and the lowest part of our breathing movement. Just inhabiting that part of the body. Receiving the breath sensations as they come. Arising, increase, decrease, disappearance. Appearing out of the pause, gathering momentum, intensification as the second phase. Going over the hump and gradually decreasing in intensity. And then tapering off, disappearing, the fourth of the phases. And then just standing here, sensing your balance, your alignment, and see, is there anything beautiful in this? Anything that connects you with your strength? 
with your equilibrium. Anything that you can entrust yourself to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.